our children's children will look back and think it was madness that we piled onto buses and motorways and tubes to all go to the same place to work at the same time. And I think that we want to accelerate that change. Hello and welcome to Zebra Talk. My name is Matt Mayer and I'm your host. And I've been thinking during recent weeks about the prevailing business model, the prevailing business structure uh, that I'm seeing both in my own business and, and with the clients we work with and getting the sense that possibly we're moving from the idea of, of the organisation being the core model to the idea that perhaps there's a model that's around disorganisation. And that word disorganisation is often laced with uh, negative connotations, but I'm thinking about it more in terms of the the focus that business has on structural integrity, on ownership, and whether that's moving to a world and moving at a pace to a world where aligned autonomy is much more important. So having those thoughts going through my head, it seemed like an excellent time to catch up with a business and the founders of a business, which is very much at the heart of that debate. Um, And so I'm really pleased to welcome to Zebra Talk Lizzie Penny and Alex Hurst from Hoxby. And uh, Lizzie and Alex are well known for the Zebra Project, but a great opportunity to welcome you to Zebra Talk and let our listeners hear a little bit more about Hoxby. Thanks for having us. Hello. So I asked this question, you know, very, very genuinely and, and without any sense of being flippant. But how how have you gone about creating a business that's that's over a thousand people operating in 30 countries uh, across a wide range of service lines without any of the glue that a traditional MBA would tell you you needed to have for, to be a successful business? I mean, I think that's the beauty of, of what we've done Matt, and the joy and the fun in, in creating it. Um, I guess the first place to start is with our purpose and what we're here to do, because I think that's really important, because basically that is the glue. So we have built Hoxby with a vision to create a happier, more fulfilled society through a world of work without bias. Or a social enterprise. And the way that we do that is through this concept of work style, which is in essence being judged on your output and being free to work where and when you choose. And hence why we've got so many people across so many different countries, because we don't mind where people are or, or when they work. What we mind is that they're brilliant at what they do and they work brilliantly together in teams. And we'll come back to how we do that later, I'm sure. But, but also this kind of concept is it, I find it amusing that you call us the disorganisation. I'm famously one of the most organised people amongst my friends, um, but we like to think Hoxby is certainly disrupting the status quo. And that came from really Alex and my personal stories. And Alex can kind of fill you in on his, but mine was as a consequence of having children and having worked for myself. I had the privilege to work for myself since working for various big businesses prior to that. When I had my first child, I just found that I always seemed to be out of the office for the most important meetings. I felt like I was never doing enough because I was never there. And yet I knew that I was working so hard and as determined and ambitious as anyone else. And that really opened my eyes probably for the first time to the pervasive inequalities in the traditional workplace. And I think that having had the kind of opportunity to see that, I then started to notice that actually and have empathy for all the other people that were being excluded from work, exceptionally talented people, but who couldn't work where and when they chose and therefore weren't able to access work that was fulfilling and meaningful to them. And bad for the economy as well, because all those talented people were essentially not accessing the workforce when they would have liked to. It's interesting. I think a lot of people particularly now in 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 the you know living living in a, in 2020 when there's a lot of uh, focus on how people work and and what flexibility is there's a sense that the idea of of flexibility is potentially being hijacked as a tool to describe 
a way of working that that needs to meet certain performance requirements rather than it being a philosophical thing. And I, I wonder when you went on a journey from having this idea that was about work fitting around a, an individual's lifestyle, in, in your case, yours, to a point now where you look at the work of the, the Hoxby Foundation, it'd be great to talk more about that, but it feels more like a, a movement which really is focused on that using work style as a way to to overcome inequality. Did you, did you know at the outset that that's where it might get to, that that might be the overall objective, or was it a more practical thing about working flexibly? I think um, we always felt that that was the potential. Our, our reasons for starting Hoxby and for having work style were very different. So for me, it was about going through burnout in the traditional model and finding myself disconnected from work because I'd been appraising my performance against how many hours I'd been putting in rather than necessarily my contribution or the effectiveness of the output of that time. So for me, this was about a psychological shift that needed to happen to be a a shift away from thinking about work as a number of hours and a contract against a number of hours and thinking about it more in terms of a contribution. And that for me was um, wonderful for my mental health to, to make that transition and to take away the rigidity of working hours, uh, fixed working hours, fixed office location. Um, for me personally, that was that was kind of liberating. And I think with our kind of different perspectives coming together behind a solution like WorkStyle, we could see how it could stretch very broadly uh, to benefit a huge number of people, but in very individual ways. So a one-size-fits-all system may have been suitable for an industrial age where the majority of the work was m- more manufacturing-led, but now we're in a digital age delivering a service economy in the main. That's a very different world of work. And that actually maybe work style can be the new nine to five was the sort of initial thought and the hypothesis that we've sustained right the way through Hoxby. I think what's interesting as well, Matt, is you just said there about flexible working. And I think um, one thing that right from the start that Alex and I felt strongly about is this industrial age where working is 200 years old, flexible working is 50 years old. Flexible working is tweaking the industrial age thinking that, you know, the eight hour day that was first conceived of by Sir Robert Owen, you know, and that is not going to make those great leaps forward that we need. Alex and I are very ambitious, both for Hoxby as a business, but also for the impact we want to create on the world. And we believe that one day everyone will work this way. Our children's children will look back and think it was madness that we piled onto buses and motorways and tubes to all go to the same place to work at the same time. And I think that we want to accelerate that change. And, you know, it's being said a lot, but 2020 and all that's going on at the moment will hopefully the one silver lining of that will be that it will accelerate that change but i think for us this is not about flexible working this is about fundamentally changing the way people engage with work and flexible working doesn't go far enough to do that whereas hopefully work style does yeah and you're right to pull me up on that and i think what it reflects is that sense that in everything that you guys have done that hoxby does that actually impact is as important as output it's a very fashionable approach to business, but you've done it in an authentic way. And I wonder, being fashionable now, I wonder how successful other businesses will be if they don't go deep. Um, And as you say, go go beyond that idea of of flexibility. And it was interesting listening to both of your stories about what motivated you to set up the business. I I came away with this sense that you were looking to address problems that had come from you wanting to be different. So you, you were operating in different ways, whether that was because you didn't want to or need to be in the office or that your lifestyle or 
and um, whatever it may be created difference from the norm and and the opportunity that i think that we have got in 2020 is that that difference is going away i genuinely believe that the the prominent work style going forward will be at least to be materially more home-based than people were even if the the fundamental yeah. business model yeah. hasn't changed is there a sense in your philosophy that we need to overcome this idea that employment is a good thing and any other model is a bad thing does that seem yeah is it just me that senses that in the world of business philosophy yeah i mean don't, don't get us started on this because i think there's a time limit on how long we can talk to you on this podcast but um yes i think that you know something that you talked about before when we've spoken to you is professional monogamy. And I think it's a really interesting concept and something that Alex and I are working to change perceptions on. You know, um, my husband has already had more jobs in his career than his father had in his whole working, long working life. And I think that's an example of how changes are happening at a societal level in terms of what our expectations are of work. Alex and I find ourselves defending the project economy, which is kind of an extension of the gig economy, a lot because it is not necessarily taking advantage of individuals. And I'm sure there are some businesses we know out there that are, but we're a social enterprise. We have a purpose at our heart. We care a lot about our culture and enormously about the Hoxbees and associates within our community. If you have that in place, then this actually can be used as a way to innovate and and move forward in terms of well-being, productivity, engagement. It produces better outcomes as well as being better for people. And I think there is a risk that sometimes innovation is hampered by people defaulting to this employee-employer model. Mm. So we would always, through our future-proofing consulting arm, be encouraging people to kind of challenge the traditional orthodoxies of work and just open up their minds to whether things can be done differently and at least start the conversation. It doesn't have to be a radical shift, but everyone can make gains, we think, by at least starting to open their mind to how it could be different. I think to build on that, I think as well, the technology that we live with every day is enabling us to access information and to live in a totally different way to the way we lived uh, even five years ago. The, the ability to um, to be online and uh, to make choices for ourselves. And to start businesses for ourselves and have a portfolio career has never been greater. And yet much of the way that we work is still anchored in pre-digital paradigms. And most of us who work within it are in the same paradigm, the same mindset that this is the way that work gets done. So the technology that we live with can be the thing that brings us out of that paradigm. And actually is probably where a lot of the frustration rubs, where, you know, in life we have this great deal of flexibility and yet in work, we don't. We don't have as much of that independence and control. So I think for individuals, there's new opportunity being presented to to try more things and be more of the whole person that they want to be, whether it's a musician and a painter and a writer or whatever it might be, a combination of skills that we all have as individuals come out when we can experiment and do lots of different things. But for businesses as well, there's a there's an opportunity to start thinking in terms of what needs to be achieved, what needs to be delivered, where does the business need to get to, rather than thinking about who do we need, uh, you know, which vacancy do we need to fill, and how can we find someone who has a breadth of skill sets to cover all of the different things that we need to do, which is in, inevitably a difficult ask. So a switch in mindset for both an employer in the traditional sense and employee or individual is really what we're looking at here, I think, uh, on both sides. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, so many organisations are defined by roles and products rather than than skills and experiences and the ability to, yeah. to connect those. And, you know, I think a number of people have found 
in the last four or five months predominantly working from home the ability to bring your your broader as you said your whole self to work in the genuine way and, and take inspiration during the working day from some of the other things that perhaps unlock some of your creativity it has been a real eye-opener and I think it's interesting as well because we talk um, or we think a lot about high functioning teams at Hoxby because we believe one day everyone will work this way. And when they do, there are two things that will set us apart. One, the talent we have within the community and two, the way we bring those teams together in order to deliver incredible outputs. And we bring teams together based on Yes, their experience, which everyone tends to use, but we also consider what their passions are and also what their circumstances are. So their availability to engage in in certain projects. And I think the passions element is so important. You know, um, an acquired lifetime's knowledge of passion for football or flying, in your case, Matt, you know, is really significant. And actually having someone like that within a team can be really important. And I, I know, Alex, you'll want to say something here about collective intelligence, which I know is one of our favourite subjects. <laughs> well, I, you queued up the perfect question, Lizzie, there, because I, I did want to talk about collective intelligence, and I know Alex is the man to answer that, because I, cause I think at a, at a practical level, it's very easy to, it's not very easy, but it's interesting to talk about this at a philosophical level. But at a, at a practical level, many of our listeners will be thinking, you know, actually, what do I do in an environment that I'm probably unfamiliar with to, to actually, at a practical level, create that sense of team, create that sense of um, collective intelligence? What, what can organisations do? I think Lizzie talked about our purpose at the top of the conversation. And I think purpose has the ability to unite people beyond bricks and mortar. It's a, a moral investment that people make into an organisation, which is the thing that transcends geographical boundaries. So when you're working on projects together, you're working with a, with a shared understanding of why, which for us is the cultural glue that brings our teams together. And it'll be the same for other organisations too, or should be. So in terms of fostering a sense of collective ambition the purpose of an organization can really do that and that and if it is authentic it does it does work and it does serve as a, a great barometer for understanding who to bring in who's the best fit for the organization and how the organization should work together optimally so in terms of harnessing this way of working where you talked about disorganization where where you lack the sort of rigidity of organization in terms of structure and process where you enable disorganization is through more emotive connection to a business, something that's deeper and perhaps more meaningful, like a, a purpose around changing the world of work for the better. No, it's, it's really interesting. And then, and then I, I guess at a level down from that, you have systems and processes within Hoxby that you, you lean on to create that thread of continuity where perhaps it doesn't exist geographically. You walk in terms of your operational approach, you, you have that consistency. Yeah, we do. Um, it's something that we learned the hard way that actually you do need to be selective and consistent in your use of technology so that people know where they stand, you know, to what systems we use to, for what purpose. And so that we can help each other to troubleshoot and uh, improve and evolve as a group uh, rather than having a kind of totally distributed opinion on those subjects uh, so yeah that, that is really helpful and and does help with the, the nuts and bolts operationally um, and helps us to therefore leverage the collective intelligence of the group so to go back to the point about collective intelligence what we're trying to do is bring together people with different perspectives cognitive diversity on a subject rather than having people who have the same 
perspective on it. So whether they've gone through the same education process or worked at the same sort of companies, what we're trying to do to Lizzie's point about passions is bring together people who have a relationship to the challenge, but a different relationship. Um, so what we're what we're doing systemically is seeking to a understand who we have within the community and what their relationship to that challenge is, and then b bring them together into a team that can function and operate using all of our um, systems and the infrastructure that we've built. So it's important that that infrastructure is is consistent and reliable. We we talk about. Um within our future proofing consulting model we have a framework um, that looks at purpose culture and structure and essentially in order to foster that collective intelligence as alex has talked about you have a shared purpose you need to have the right structures in place which are both accessible and fit with people's preferences but also which are easy to navigate and and for people to understand. Um, And then you also need to have the right culture to overlay that. So for instance, a key part of collective intelligence is about this kind of concept of positive dissent. So people being able to um, challenge other people in, in a positive way, people understanding that everyone's perspective adds value. And I think the cultural element of that can't be overlooked when creating organizations that are fit for the future. Um, because it's through that that you can, yes, everyone focuses on having the right agile structures or or, all good forward-facing organisations do, but I think it's that cultural part that actually leads to the collective intelligence because it gives people the confidence to speak up, the empowerment to be able to come up with their own initiatives, et cetera, et cetera. And I think from a leader's perspective, if if we're looking to encourage that diversity of experience and, and contribution, one of the starting points is you have to know what you've got in your organisation. And I've been exploring an idea recently with some other leaders that, you know, perhaps we're about you know, in, in traditional business, perhaps we're about to get back a workforce that's completely different to the one that went home four months ago. Um, and we don't, we don't know what re-entry is going to look like. We don't, we don't know who's actually coming back to the organization and what, what will have been unlocked by that experience that was within them, what new experiences they will have had that they can bring to the party. In the Hoxby context, how do you find the right people? How do you, how do you, encourage at the at the the point where people join hoxby how do you make sure they're a good fit i'm going to come back and say why that was the wrong phrase in a minute but why they're a good fit and how you know that they're going to contribute something positive and i and i pick myself up there because actually i think one of the one of the the pressing challenges at the moment is we do genuinely recruit for fit and look for diversity and actually how do you recruit for diversity in the broadest sense when the recruitment model is generally about compliance with a model yes we're all about creating a world of work without bias so we are not looking for fit we're looking for positive dissent and intelligent naivety and cognitive diversity and all of those things and i think at hoxby our selection and our curation processes are so important and um we anonymize them is the first thing to say which is really important there is no face-to-face speaking element and our selection process a lot of it is about connection to our purpose and passion for creating a world of work without bias and a world where work style is the kind of dominant way of working because as Alex said in the absence of bricks and mortar having connections that purpose is everything and what we're doing we sometimes talk about Hoxby as a global platform for entrepreneurship because what we're looking for actually is if people are connected to that vision 
they can make Hoxby whatever they want to make it. They can come in, they could start a new business unit, they could create a new client offer, they could create a new associate offer. Actually, if they connect to what we're trying to do, then they will be able to create what they want to do functionally within that. So the way that we select is is very different from others. And it's, you know, we've had more than 20,000 applications to join the community. That's quite an old stat. We've probably had a lot more than that now. And, and our selection process, because we're such a trust-based model, is critical to our existence. And what sort of things go wrong? Within selection or within Hoxby? Yeah, well, <laughs> probably both. Hoxby. Probably both, but, you know, perhaps they're related. But just, you know, what are the what are the sorts of challenges that you have to deal with and things you have to unpick? It's an interesting question because the way that we recruit, so bring people into Hoxby is totally different to traditional organisations. So we're looking for um, alignment to our purpose, but we're not limited uh, to who we can bring in. And we're not looking for people to come and fill a job. There are, there are no jobs. Everybody's freelance and everybody comes and brings their own skill set. And it's our job to understand with them what that skill set is and how it can best be used in the delivery of our work for clients. So it's a, it's a very different dynamic. And we put the pressure on us to understand our people well enough to be able to use them in the right way. I think the challenge with, with that and for us generally in doing something so different in the way that we work with people is expectation management, setting expectation at the outset and ensuring that that is understood through the selection, onboarding and engagement process such that when someone is in the Hawksby community, they understand what their remit is, you know, because it's not like going into a job in a company where you have, here's your contract, here's your job specification, off you go. It's more about here's the organisation as it exists. It's a group of people that's trying to fundamentally change the way that work gets done. As Lizzie said, you can make of it what you want to make of it. It's up to you as an individual to get out of Hoxby, whatever fits with your lifestyle. So work in a way that suits you, do work that motivates you. And so getting people into that way of thinking and that, into that mindset of actually it's my responsibility um, to work this out and to understand my place within Hoxby is probably the hardest thing. It's the hardest challenge we have is taking people on that journey to, to unlearn what they, what they know and to learn new behaviours that are going to help them in the Hoxby world. That The idea of um, onboarding in your context in, interests me. How do you settle someone into that Hoxby process as well as culture? We are constantly evolving our onboarding process. It's a balance between trying not to overwhelm people because this is a very different way of working for lots of people, whilst also helping them to understand how to navigate a completely different world uh, of work. So we ha- we're a Slack based community. I'm not sure how familiar your listeners will be with Slack, but essentially it's an exceptional platform that allows us to have various channels for um, different conversations. Uh, One of the ways that we try and make onboarding as simple as possible is by taking translations from the real world and putting them in our naming of Slack. For example, within our our Slack channels, we have the boardroom where all major announcements are, are made, the meeting room where people introduce themselves, the water cooler, which is probably our busiest channel full of pictures of cats dogs and babies um and and then we have the work without bias channel of course so we've got various channels that hopefully 
we try and design out problems at Hawksby. So we try and make it so that everything is intuitive as possible and everything is self-serve. So we also have our own system called My Hawksby, where all opportunities are posted, where you update your profile, where you can say set your status in terms of if you're on sabbatical, if you're taking some time off for summer holidays with the kids, et cetera. So through both the combination of Slack and My Hoxby, we try and make everything as intuitive as possible. So for instance, we have a wiki within My Hoxby, which everyone can go to to find out answers to questions, but also where the Hoxby community can help others. So we talk about creating a symbiotic organism and creating ways for Hoxbys to help each other And both Alex and I in our past lives have found ourselves to be a bottleneck in the businesses that we've built. And that was something that we were really keen to make sure that at Hoxby we designed out from the start. So we've always kind of got this self-serve mindset. One of the things that we hope will encourage that is that we share our profits with Hoxby's. So every member of the Hoxby community who's gone on the onboarding process, so who has met all of the criteria for onboarding, then gets their passport stamped for for the year ahead. So they're up to speed with with how Hoxby works and their remit. They then uh, receive quarterly profit share. And that is uh, a passport that that is then renewed annually. So if there are changes to Hoxby that they need to be aware of or or to kind of re-onboard themselves for the next year, then then we will weave those into that passport process so that they are kind of re-qualified each year. That's really interesting. And, and actually, the idea of revisiting that as well, I think, is, is interesting because so many traditional business models don't do that. You have a pass to enter, yes. but not, not that revalidation of the, of the right to travel. I think it's really interesting because we talk at Hoxby about custodianship. And I think that's very different from a traditional employment model that, you know, we are very philosophical that some people will be at Hoxby for a long time and others will be there just for a while. For some people, it fills a short-term need and for other people, it's there for a long, they're there for a long time. And the same with our the roles in our core team, not roles, the opportunities within our core team. We talk about those as being um, custodians as well, that people are just looking after things for a period of time with an expectation that they will then hand it over to someone else. And I think that is one of actually the key cultural differences from the employment relationship yeah, I'm I'm listening to you, and I was, what was going through my head was, could you could either of you ever see yourselves going back to a traditional employment model, if only to change it? I'm making I'm making a face. I'm making a face, you Cosby. I think I'd make a terrible employee, to be honest. I don't I don't think Alex or I could ever work for anyone else again. We'd be more likely to start a coffee shop than do that. But I do think that we would relish the chance, and we do relish the chance through you know the future proofing work we do to help other organisations do this. I think that we recognise that we have you know spent the last five years being the prototype for creating this world of work without bias we're we're very lucky to have done that with some of the biggest clients and companies in the world like Unilever AIA Merck Warner Media Amazon um, but actually we are reaching a point where the impact that we want to create can't be created through just Hoxby itself and that's why we created the Hoxby Foundation because we want to have kind of global impact on a an enormous scale and that will involve us working with organizations that aren't paying clients in order to see the change that we want to create in the world and i think the 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 concept of the hoxby foundation is really interesting both in terms of its purpose and its link with your desire which as we talked about from the beginning has been to create impact from day one but also the model that you've deployed and it'd be really interesting just to learn a little bit more about the the foundation model and and how it's funded and how you're making that foundation sustainable because i think for a lot of our listeners there is a growing interest in how you can 
build something around your organization that's different but can have that impact that doesn't necessarily have to change the whole organization at the same time one of the key blockers to ever getting approval to do these things yeah i think that's right and alex already said we pay 25 percent of our profits to the hoxby community we also pay 10 percent of our profits to the hoxby foundation and so that's the way that we make sure that the foundation can run it's it's not for profit but we also are looking for corporate partners and charity partners in order to further the work that we're doing through the foundation uh, so i think that there is this because it's funded through hoxby we know that it can be perpetuated but we're looking for further opportunities to accelerate change and that's really about spreading the word of work style you know, if work style were adopted on a larger scale, it would provide, I mean, there are so many, we could talk about the UN sustainability goals and how many of those could be impacted through working through work style. But essentially, it can drive huge impact simply through the adoption of work style, both economically and for society. Um, so that's what we're looking to do through the Hoxley Foundation. That's, that's interesting. And the, the sense that I get, if you look at a lot of foundations that are attached to to more traditional large corporates they have a strong research and education component to them but when i looked at hoxby foundation in a, in a bit more detail the, it was interesting seeing the, the the sort of advocacy role and and the promotion of frameworks within business as, as a goal and I, I felt that was different is that where the focus is or have i misinterpreted that no you've interpreted it right uh, that is where the focus is i think what we what we want to do is learn and educate by doing so we have a lot of what we invest from Hoxby, as Lizzie described, will be in the incubation of pilots, initiatives, uh, hypotheses that we have that we can test within the Hoxby environment as being ways in which we can enable more widespread adoption of work styles. So they might be tools, they might be processes, they might be accreditations, whatever they might be. We'll seek to incubate those and then amplify them out into broader business through that advocacy and through the relationship that we have with corporate and charitable partners. So we're very much about seeking to innovate and put those innovations out into the wider world as as best we can. Um, and that's where Hoxby Foundation's efforts will be centred primarily. We always say that we're about doing, Matt. You, you perfectly picked that up because Alex and I, it's the one thing that we always say, there are so many people talking about things, whereas we like talking about them too, but we definitely like to show it can be done. And that's what we've been doing with Hoxby. You know, we came up with the concept, but we wanted to show that it works and we've shown it works. And now we want to show that it can be applied to all the naysayer organizations that think that they're too big or they're too, too traditional or they're too old to do it. It can be done. You just need to have the will to do it. I'm interested to think a little bit more about how that fits with future proofing and, and the consulting work through future proofing. Does the future proofing concept join together all of those things or is it more in the lots of future proofing conversations and very much more in the technology mold rather than the, the broader organizational mold? Does future proofing consulting pull that together or is it something different? I think the biggest difference between future proofing and the Hoxby Foundation is that future proofing is for the benefit of the company in a very direct way. So productivity, future proofing, to use the verb, you know, making sure that that organization is fit for the future and can cope with shocks like the one we're going through at the moment with the pandemic. You know, future proofing sets organizations up for that and drives it a very tangible return on investment in that consulting area. Whereas the Hoxby Foundation is much more about 
um, this belief that work should fit around life rather than the other way around. It's about diversity and inclusion and the societal benefit that comes from that. So the foundation where we're partnering with organisations, that's where they want to use their organisation as a best practice template to illustrate that, for instance, they can improve the number of people on the autism spectrum within their organisation, for example, increase their demographic diversity in all sorts of different ways. So I think those are the main differences, both very important things to do. And we've always felt that the beauty of the model that we work in at Hoxby is that it's good for the individual, it's good for society, and it's good for business. But I think it's essentially the society and the business taking those two different angles across the foundation and future-proofing. So I wanted to finish up today talking about the as as you said getting things done the practical side of demonstrating what can be done uh, hoxby through you guys founding it has had the, the i guess the privilege of a blank sheet of paper and genuine authenticity from day one lots of organizations don't necessarily have that privilege so they're, they're coming with an existing structure and existing set of challenges what are the things that that you would encourage leaders to look at as easy wins as, as step you know, initial stepping stones to start to explore some of the themes that are important to you about work fitting around life rather than the other way around that's a great question i think work style is probably the first thing and we're going to make a lot of information and tools available about work style as part of the foundation watch this space but that work style is a word that can establish new cultural norms just in and of itself you know it's not about whether you work normally or flexibly it's a a word that applies to everyone and you know some people want the freedom to choose when and where they work simply because they enjoy surfing or because they don't like getting on a bus. But some people need it, you know, some people who can't get to an office or, or can't work a nine to five or, or don't thrive in, a, in an office environment, for example. Lots of different individual circumstances or, or diagnoses that mean that that way of working just doesn't fit them. Work style can be, just be a cultural language, a glue that holds everybody onto the same system. It's not a you know a time-based system. It's a it's a system of individual preference and individual choice. So I think even culturally, there's an opportunity there for just the adoption of the word work style, and that can then permeate other decisions across the business around how you treat people. The, the the culture will be impacted, and the business will naturally move into uh, what we would call a sort of digital age way of thinking about how work gets done. I also think, the, you know, I don't want to talk too much about COVID, but I think the other thing is that we are definitely in a period of re-evaluation at the moment. And it's been horrific and traumatic for so many people. But the one benefit is that people are rethinking things and particularly organisations have an opportunity to say, do we need to go back? to the way we used to work before. And we feel that it's an opportunity for leaders to role model what they want to create in their organisations and not just lead leaders as individuals, but as organisations as well. We've always tried to inspire those who we work with as well. You know, Unilever have said, proudly told us they're not going back to their office till 2021. AIA, um, who we do a lot of work for, they're purpose around healthier longer better lives is something they're really over committing to at the moment those sorts of things we're inspired by them and they're inspired by us and I think every aspect of a way a business works can set an example to its employees to its suppliers to its clients and there's this opportunity for kind of 
positive contagion there that you know this is an opportunity at the moment for people to open their minds a bit more try different things they've had to try different things and to not just slip back into that old way of working so hopefully people will have the chance now to reevaluate and do things differently and do things better yeah and i think the 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 interesting thing is that the, the the workforce whether they're employees or any other structure have reasonably strong views on this, which are often balanced. They're not polarised views, they're balanced views about the pluses and minuses of the COVID experience. But really, the responsibility lies on, on I think, on the leaders to be prepared to listen to that. And I mm-hmm. think if you're if you're a leader that of an organisation which is naturally falling back on previous structures and, and, and previous processes without at least challenging them, you have to step back and ask yourself why that is. What is it about you that needs that that structure that perhaps isn't reflected in the in the wider workforce? So you're, you're right. It's a real opportunity to listen, um, to open the mind, to play, to experiment. It's a new level of trust that leaders need to kind of make this work for the long term. You know, I think it's it's a trust that's been forced upon them of late, but hopefully been a learning curve for them that means that it exists more than it did and that they can have more faith in their individual work members of their workforce to deliver. And that trust barrier is the big one to overcome in order to kind of really make the, the gains that we, we think are possible. And I think that it's trust and belief in the leader's ability as well as, as the workforce. It's, it's the leader's ability to cope with something new and different. So an interesting period of, of self-reflection for leaders. And, and as three business leaders looking slightly daunted by that challenge it's probably a good time to say Alex Lizzie thank you so much for the conversation today it's been great chatting to you and uh, I suspect you've got some busy times ahead thanks for having us